on this episode. We like it raw. We lose our marbles in Venice Shoreline as we discuss the absolutely legendary King Apparatus and Chris Murray on Checkered Past, the Scodcast. What up, Checkerheads? Welcome to Checkered Pass, the Scodcast with Celine and Rob. The show where a rude Goldberg device and a large Heptron Skylider Particle Accelerator 5000 explore the history of a different... God damn it. <laughs> so stupid. Explore the history and impact of a different band each episode and hope to bring in new fans along the way. I'm Rob and this is my co-host for today, Engineer Joey. Hi. Joey, did you get it? I Slyn normally doesn't. I I don't know if I like I I knew what you were referring to, but I did not know. It. Those are famous <laughs> apparatuses. Okay, Rube Goldberg device and the large <laughs> hadron collider. I I suppose they both fall under the category of what an apparatus would be. Yes, I started and then I just kept going. <laughs> this was not brevity is the soul of wit. They say, but they didn't realize that. Wow. It, they didn't, but that for, who said that brevity is a soul, but that was Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare did not anticipate the world of uh, hyper pop, <laughs> so this is what happens. More is more. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Joey. Famous apparati. <laughs> apparati. Or, I found out recently. Or apparatuses. I found it's out both. that both are correct. Yeah. Recently, I looked it up. Yeah. And so, if you are a cactuses person, which why are you? Uh, that is fine, <laughs> but I'm still a cacti person. Yeah. Octopi, cacti. It's more fun to say. Yeah. Are we, uh, do you want to pick it up where we left off? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Pick it up, pick it up. Where we left off, pick it up, pick it up. Where we left off. Trying to think of what, so you have been playing shows. You said they were uneventful. That was your review of the shows you played. Yeah, like very, very fun. Uh, I played shows this weekend in my, uh, 80s tribute band, cover band, Rat Poison. Uh, at a place called On the Rocks, uh, which is a great venue, and they were very fun shows, but also nothing crazy happened. It was. How did you feel about the block party at your other venue, uh, Blues on White, featuring a different '80s cover band? No, I no. I have feelings about this. Yes. They were not featuring a different '80s cover band. It was a entire event featuring three separate tribute bands that do specific bands that we do five or six songs each from. Ah, yes. So they literally GNR. hired three bands <laughs> to, to replace do you. the job that our band could do by ourselves. <laughs> so they're wasting money. Wasting money. Wasting money. Well, you could have just gone up there and done 50 ACDC songs or whoever else was it. Yeah. We mixed it up. We threw a Judas Priest song in there even. But not, that. but not Five Alarm Funk. You could not have replaced them. No, definitely not. It's a different uh, kind of block party. That's a fun block party. <laughs> I, I passed by that yesterday and I was like, hmm, I wonder if Joey knows about this. <laughs> I figured you did. <laughs> I did not know about it. I just, that sounds like something they would do. Uh, oh, the oh the uh, 80s rock one. Yeah, no, it was talked about at a band of jam. <laughs> for sure. That, that was a topic of conversation at... When, when you play in a cover band, you have these types of conversations about the cover band scene. So I have to ask. Yes. Cover band scene. Talk to me. 
Let's um, care about this scene. Okay, I'm not most, in the scene. Almost exclusively way older dudes than me. Right. For sure. Uh, Maz, the singer of my band, and I are the, like, probably some of the younger people in the scene. Um, but it's like, really, a lot of people with a lot of egos, uh, which is funny because they're just, like, playing other people's music. I get it. Like, it's... It, it just, the whole thing kind of blows me away. I worked really hard in the, like, punk rock scene for over a decade and didn't get very far. It was a lot of fun, and I'm very proud of the work that I did, but it's very funny to go play, like, a bunch of fucking Def Leppard songs and get, like, paid, like, 400 bucks for a weekend. It's so stupid. It's a very silly situation. And then they have the big ego about it. And so is there, yeah. like, beef? Oh, for sure. Uh, not with me because I don't give a shit. <laughs> but like, but and our our band is pretty like good for the most part. But there's a lot of like, yeah, oh, this these guys won't play with these guys over here, and this band is like. So who's eating your spaghettios right now in 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 Edmonton? Like who who's doing the same thing you're doing that you have to fight venue space for? I don't even know to no. be honest. I I don't do any of the business stuff for the band, so I'm not really paying that the much motley attention. dudes stuff like that for sure. Other puns. Uh, other nah, I think our pun name is better than most. It's very good. It's very good. It's very opinion. good. Rat's What's, poison. Yeah. We play rat and we play poison. poison. It would be funny if you played neither of them, but played every adjacent band around it, like just a bunch of winger. That would be like Skid Row and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Do you play winger and Skid Row? <laughs> no. I I this opportunity. I, I want to play like 18 in life though. That'd be a pretty sick song. <laughs> <laughs> all right enough bullshit let's bring in our guest <laughs> we're absolutely thrilled to introduce our guests uh they're the saxophonist and guitarist and vocalists for minneapolis ska band the prize fighters whose new album punch up is available right now through jump up records courtney and aaron are here hi friends hey how's it going hey. welcome do you do you have uh before we get into the fun part the serious question is do you have strong feelings about Rat and or poison <laughs> for Joey. <laughs> Those are bands I've not heard of or thought about in a very long time. <laughs> and they live rent free in Joey's head right now. <laughs> but they're making me money. It's fine. <laughs> hey, good, good on you, man. That's awesome. <laughs> the opportunity came up. Uh, Celine, uh, Celine's friend band needed a bass player so i was like i could play those songs i'd seen them play at a bar i was like i think i could play some acdc songs and shit on bass and i spent like two or three months learning three straight hours worth of 80s rock and now i can make some money on a weekend every now and then it's fun <laughs> dress up yeah, in a silly that's wig. where the money is with uh, live music <laughs> for sure which is a really dumb situation but it is what it is i put on a silly wig and make fun of myself so it's okay what's the uh what's the scene like where you are not necessarily the cover band scene i guess but <laughs> what's the 80s tribute yeah rock what's scene? hey is there beef in the <laughs> minneapolis 80s tribute band scene oh there's I, i've i've seen what is it zed was it zed letblen they're they're a pretty good uh cover band they play you know the the outer metro rim you know <laughs> oh, wait no i i have no idea <laughs> I love Zed Leplin. I, I want that to be true. It's a for real band that I've seen live. Oh, wait, I thought that was a. I thought you were joking. <laughs> no, like, that, that it was, hard to tell, doesn't it? 
That is that is that is a first draft band name. Because <laughs> they got it right the first time. <laughs> and they are all dressed very authentically, like all the members of Led Zeppelin. And um, I was really, I, I thought they were really cool. I tried to buy uh, Jimmy Page a, a pitcher of beer, but he doesn't drink anymore. And um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, they, I, uh, I. Just funny. Just I don't know. There, it was surreal. <laughs> how about on the? How about in the ska scene? Maybe that's more uh, in your in your wheelhouse. <laughs> What's uh, what is it like over there? I know here in Edmonton, non-existent. Uh, you know, we we pinch and scrape for every ska dollar that we get up here. Uh, but uh, what's it like where you are, especially nowadays? Well, nowadays, there are a handful of um, different types of young bands that are kind of doing their thing. Um, uh, Ska-wise, some ska punk bands, some reggae uh, bands. And I used to be way more in touch with the the scene, but, um, you know, I hear about them all the time, um, popping up and playing gigs. And, um, you know, we have a uh, Minnesota ska MN ska is kind of the, um, the label of our scene. Um, it, they try to promote shows in the, in the twin cities area and Minneapolis area. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a scene that's kind of, you know, it's come and gone, you know, there's been, there's been periods of time where there's like tons of stuff happening. And then there's, you know, there'll be years where there's hardly anything going on. Um, so I think we're kind of, um, on the way back up. Uh, wouldn't you say, Aaron? Yeah, it does feel like that. Uh, there's, there are a number of bands doing stuff, and and uh, what's more important, I think, is they're playing shows together. The uh, the the more recent ska bands, and and by more recent, I mean I'm I'm talking about you know five years. It's just, yeah, the past several years of the pandemic, it it's felt a little bit harder to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on. But uh, yeah, I do think that there is a there is an upswing in in the amount of bands playing and, um, and still have, have tours coming through, even though that's, that's sort of on its, on its way up as well. But, uh, yeah, it's, it definitely feels like a, an upward trend, which is always great. Is it compartmentalized? Like the scene is like the, the more traditional sounding bands and like the ska punk bands are they on two sides or is it all kind of coalescing a little bit more nowadays? It's I hard think that they they more. play they play um pr- uh, you know pretty well together. I mean, we're not it's not you know ska punk versus traditional versus reggae or anything. I think we play a lot of uh, shows with with some of those bands and they play together as well. So it's just like it, it it's kind of a supportive scene. I don't see things uh, being too uh, contentious or too separate. Yeah, and, and right now we're the only band that I know of that is playing traditional ska in the twin cities at least at least the only band that's you know been actively at it um i know there there could you know could be some younger bands i have or newer bands i haven't uh come across yet but i think the scene is still it's small enough that it hasn't factioned off which is which is nice um but i do know that that there are a handful of bands that tend to play together a lot and that's you know that that seems like it's a uh, more of a, a relationship of friendship than it is any sort of you know f- uh, factioning off. So um, 
we've played with pretty much every, well, maybe not every Scott. There, there's still a handful of Scott bands in, in town that are newer that I'd like to to play with. You know, once we get our uh, our show calendar chugging along again. But Speaking yeah, of cover bands, though, we, there's uh, there's a ska cover band that we I would love for us to play with, um, Meat Raffle Ska. <laughs> they, uh, I think our trombone player has sat in with them a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering because uh, the band started in, uh, sorry, Prize Fighters specifically started in 08, right? That would have been... Uh, 06. 06 is when we started playing shows. So. 06. Wow. Yeah. Like been at it for a minute <laughs> which is great but like that was what uh our friend kenny likes like likes to refer to as the dark ages the 2005 to 2015 um when it was probably a lot harder uh to gain traction but like how has it seen how was it then and how has it changed now do you think that was like well i think that was actually a really strong time in ska and and maybe that's a that's a matter of perspective um but from uh from 2003 is when uh, we started doing mn ska and that was it it created with the intent of trying to make ska shows happen again and uh, connecting some of the some of the local ska bands that were in town that that were playing all over the cities and then and getting them together to actually, you know, put on a big ska show. And then eventually, you know, when, when bands would tour through to have a, a bunch of openers, that, you know, local openers that were ska bands. And then that, that's how you grow a scene. I think get get people to get bands to bring out their friends. And then they see, uh, you know, a, a headlining touring band. Uh, and then that becomes fans of that band. And then it just grows and grows. Um, so before, Prize Fighters started, I mean, I was booking bands like Westbound Train and the Debonairs. Um, I, I can't remember the, the timeline of this, but, you know, we had the we had the Afterbeat down a lot um, from Winnipeg Ooh, as well as Winnipeg. the Barrymore. Love them. And, Barrymore, uh, yeah, this is all Bacteria Buffet stuff. This is my jam. Yeah, so we yeah, and we made we made pretty good friends with all with all those uh, those Winnipeg Scott Cats because uh, it was, you know, probably the closest... I mean, Minneapolis is probably the closest like major market in the United States to to Winnipeg, and it's depending on the border crossing, not too long of a drive. So that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, we there was a lot of good music that was coming out at that time. I mean, I think more on the the traditional Scott side and like the the reggae stuff with the Agrolites and everything that the Agrolites inspired. Um, so we, and we were booking a lot of shows of that a lot of bands wanted to come through a lot of bands were touring and it was great to establish the Twin Cities as a viable stop you know it, it's it's harder to tour through parts of the Midwest because there's not you know it's not like the coasts where you have all these these good tour stops that are maybe like a couple hours apart from each other because like getting from Minneapolis to Chicago is about seven hours give or take yeah and, we know uh, about that in canada <laughs> yeah everything is seven hours apart <laughs> yeah for sure for sure the touring touring through canada i know is uh yeah so pr- props to the canadian bands that have done that i i uh <laughs> i saw i shout out to to edmonton uh when uh when my old band uh gilbots played in in winnipeg because we were you know sharing shows with uh afterbeat 
Oh, we played we played a show as part of the the jazz festival there. They had a ska night and um, or a couple ska nights. We played with the Operator Seven Eighty. Oh, oh man! And that and that band was, was great. We were we were just instant fans of them. It was really cool hanging out with them all weekend and and playing a show with them up there. Um, oh yeah, poor one out. They they drove like you were talking about how how long the <laughs> the drives were just to get get to that show. Uh, yeah, so, Edm- Edmonton to Winnipeg would be like a 14-hour, something like that, 14, wow. 15 hours probably. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually, I the first time I saw the operators, 780, they were uh, in a pizza shop called, like, not pizza shop, but like a sit-down pizza diner type of place uh, called the Rose Bowl. And Eric, their keyboardist, was like wiling out. It was it was a wild show to see that band, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it turns out uh, actually Celine is friends with Eric and has been for a bunch of years now. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah, I kind of lost touch with with uh, the people in that band, but yeah, awesome, awesome band, very, very cool and, and innovative for what they were doing. Yeah, they were part of like uh, a really uh, small ish scene that was happening at that time. Uh, if it was like the early aughts uh, with operators and well, Mad Bomber Society, obviously, but yeah. I mean they're kind of older than that. Uh, King Muscafa playing at Blues on White every other weekend. Yep. Uh, and then around our scene would have been the Utopian Skank, Taco Cat, I guess. Yeah, we had a brief foray with ska and uh, in the mid aughts, and then kind of lost it. And then not until now. And then there's now all of a sudden a bunch of bands popping up. Yeah, which is sick. Oh, awesome. So uh, with uh, the prize fighters, what was the impetus to start the band? Um, like, what's the what's the history there? Uh, for the prize fighters? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it started with me uh, as a, a solo recording project, just wanting to explore uh, more, like, playing authentic Jamaican music. Because I'd played in ska punk bands and kind of like third wave two-tone bands and... Uh, you know, I, I loved all types of ska, but I was really getting into Rocksteady and a lot of early reggae stuff. And I wanted to, I wanted to explore the the nuts and bolts of the music because you know I love Rocksteady and I I knew you know it's a pretty particular sound and style in a, in a very short lived era within Jamaican music. And it's about like trying to write a song. How can you actually write a song that evokes the same sort of feel and and sound as some of those old Rocksteady recordings? And that that turns into me coming up with a couple songs and then uh, jamming with a few people. So uh, the original drummer of the band, uh, Tim, uh, we were roommates in college and had a basement rehearsal space and would jam out a lot and then started sort of playing those songs and, uh, you know, a few others, learning some covers with uh, my brother Jordan, who plays bass in the Prize Fighters, and then Matt, who's uh, lead guitar in the Prize Fighters. We, we, we had, Matt, Jordan, and I had played in that band, Gilbots, the, the band that had had made it up to Winnipeg that one time. Uh, so we, had, we were all used to playing together. So, uh, and that band was was a ska punk band, but kind of toward, toward the latter part of that band's tenure, we were doing more, uh, like, punk songs and like Scott and reggae songs. We weren't mixing it up as much. And that was sort of me moving toward wanting to really just boil down the essentials of the, the ska part of 
of that music and and dig deeper into it. So uh, kind of formed with that intentionality of wanting to really learn how to play ska in its like pure original form. And I don't mean that in, in a sort of dismissive way of, of, of other types of ska or, or other, you know, fusion styles like ska punk, but I just love 60s Jamaican music. And I was just, I was diving so deep into it. And it was just this, this passion, this love affair with that music. So the next step as a, as a musician and a lover of the music was to try to play it. Cause I, I love, I loved seeing a lot of those bands. Like, like I mentioned the bands that would, would come through like West Montrain toured through a lot. And uh, yeah, you know, book the debonairs a couple times, go Jimmy go, um, you know, trying to think who else, but, you know, but, you know, but bands would come through like Agrilites and, and other groups. And there wasn't anything like that in town. And I was like, I, I want to make something like that happen in the, in the twin cities. Cause you had all, all sorts of ska bands, but you didn't really have any representation of the, the Jamaican inspired like sixties sounding bands and no one playing, you know, rock steady or like the early reggae stuff that the Agrilites were inspired by. So it, it took off from there. So, you know, first show was 2006 and we, we grew in numbers. You've picked up, uh, a good keyboard player. Uh, so Whitney and she played with us for a number of years and uh, Nathan on trumpet and uh, Josh on sax. The, uh, those three aren't, aren't with the band anymore. Another is, is Tim, but throughout that era, we were working on the sound a lot and we finally ended up recording early 2010, releasing our first album in December of that year. So we took a long time to get our sound together and, you know, write, write enough songs and, and put together the, the the group of songs that made it on the album. You know, we recorded plenty of demos and stuff like that, but it didn't feel ready because, you know, we were, we were learning a lot because, you know, playing ska the, in the Jamaican style is, it, it, t- it does take a lot of study, especially if you're used to playing like two tone or ska punk or, or stuff like that. There's, there's different techniques that you need to learn and utilize in order to, to make it sound different. And that was a lot of fun to see like, how can we, how can we tailor and craft our sounds to be both, you know, a a nod to our Jamaican influences, but also that that is original to us. And that is, that really represents us as a band. So we took our time with it and uh, we still kind of take that, slow approach to you know releasing our music and everything because uh, like this new album we put out you know it's 2023 so it's 12 and a half years after the first one and it's our third studio album so we're not you know putting out an album every year or every other year you know we'd like to but it's you know there's uh there's a trade-off there i think and being in the position of wanting to make good music and not, and not being on like, you know, we don't have like a big record contract or anything like that. So we're not obligated to tour the world and put out new music all the time. So we can take our time with it and just stay on that journey of exploring Jamaican music and, and playing it and having fun with it. And there's a, there's a real craft I find to the music that you put out. And so that kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, what the things that struck me, especially on the lyrical side 
is that there's um, it's, it, the lyrics are not trite, I guess, is uh, which can sometimes happen when people are play, paying a lot of homage uh, to like 60s Jamaican music. Yeah, uh, they kind of focus on the I don't call it like the love songs, but you know that the fact that it's it is it was party music. Uh, but what's what separates the prize fighters for me is that while it is a party <laughs> in a lot of ways, uh, the the subject matter is is both serious and pointed. Uh, so can you talk to me about from like the lyrical standpoint, like what's the what's the message and what was the inspiration for the newest record even? So uh, I, I write the majority of the lyrics. Uh, Jordan writes uh, lyrics for for some of the tunes, too, um, but yeah, I think the lyrics take the longest for me to write because I'm always thinking of like musically in my head and, and I always have these vocal melodies that come to me. So finding the right words to fit both the vibe of the song and the, you know, matching the meter and everything like that is something that I, I, I struggle with, but I put a lot of effort into it and time into it. And, and I, I do care a lot about how the lyrics come across. So I'm not, I'm not just just rushing those, but I think we sing about what what we know and just what our our I don't want to say our politics, but just you know I I I've written a lot of punk rock songs in my life, and that sort of song approach to songwriting has definitely changed musically with with uh, you know writing traditional ska and rock steady and reggae stuff, but as far as the person who I am and the the way I I express myself lyrically hasn't hasn't changed, and I'm not trying to like yeah, like you said, not trying to be trite or or sing uh, about you know being on the beach or anything like that. We are <laughs> we are very very landlocked. Um, so yeah, no no way. <laughs> no fake patois, no like you know. You know, I, I, thankfully, a lot of bands don't do that. And um, man, you're gonna have some thoughts when we uh, get real deep with Chris Murray. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the card. I love it. Yeah, he's got the card. <laughs> we have a running joke that each country gets one white guy that gets to do the fake in Jamaican, and he gets the card. <laughs> Yeah, he, he gets the Canada card. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And, and and Chris knows what he's doing. Chris has been a big inspiration for us, too, just as far – well, we're on the same page as him, uh, I think, as far as playing Jamaican music in its essential form. And, uh, uh, yeah, and he he knows what he's – he knows what he's doing, so uh, – yeah, I won't. I won't go after him for that. <laughs> no. there's, there's a certain amount of authenticity to it. You know what? I, like, I, I don't feel like he's doing it. I feel like I, he's I, doing it because that makes a good ska song. <laughs> like that. That's how classic ska. That's how it's enunciated and pronounced in classic ska songs. Yeah. So that's how he puts it in the song. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't think it's much more to it than than that not him, not when we I mean? talk about like the first mad caddies record we brought up on the show before yeah that was like great. that was a real put up like it was not i don't know if that was the right like musical choice <laughs> yeah 100 percent. yeah which, oh, which yeah. I, I think i know what you're talking about i i remember those early mad caddies records and i i don't know <laughs> i don't know if they still hold up i haven't gone back and checked them out yet but yeah you're totally right as far as um 
how certain you know themes or enunciations or or whatever do not that they lend themselves to playing traditional ska, but it is it, it's part and parcel to that part of the culture. Like you know, the you know ska music is an expression of Jamaican culture and particularly the national identity of Jamaica that was that was so fresh when ska was was developing, you know, getting its independence in 1962. That's really when ska started to come into its own as its own like sound distinct from the like jump blues R&B boogie records that were were first being emulated in the the Jamaican recording industry. So yeah, around the time, you know, 6263, the, you know, the newly independent nation of Jamaica looking for a national identity for Scott to be the, the music that was synonymous with Jamaica and its independence really did cement that message that, that this was one people. Like they were Jamaicans. They weren't British subjects. It wasn't divided, you know, divided by race. I mean, that that's, that's the whole mindset behind it. And Scott really embodied that. So when someone like Chris Murray is coming out and, and he's using us, you know, similar, you know, enunciations or, or certain language or, or idioms or things like that from Jamaica, it's part of playing the music because you're celebrating the culture. You're celebrating the people. When you play Scott, sure. you're not yeah. just copying it or, or playing. This is a different type of Scott. It's like, no, this is, this is playing Scott. Like, this is Scott as it, as it was created with the intention that that it was created with uh so i do think there's a big difference in that sort of i mean it's it's like the it's like the whole cultural appropriation conversation where it's like are you are you borrowing from a culture or are you stealing from a culture and i think that that's that can be subjective and, and debatable but you know in the case of really celebrating the the music that came from Jamaica and including some elements of Jamaican culture within that music is appropriate when done in a you know a tasteful and respectful way and I think Chris does that very well one might say he plays the real ska one might Indeed. say that yes <laughs> who says that he oh does. he does oh that's right <laughs> I, I, <laughs> he he would say i does <laughs> <laughs> so when we were talking about this is a good segue when we were talking about um uh, bands to discuss for the time scott sheen today uh you brought up king apparatus and chris murray as like the a good choice and we're thrilled to talk about it um because obviously we'll talk about it but king apparatus basically invented canadian ska music and chris murray went on to be a juggernaut in his own right uh so what was the uh why choose Chris Murray and um, was there any uh, unique um, uh, uh, reason, I guess, for choosing it? Like uh, any 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 history that uh, that you want to share? Oh, um, I mean, I I've always dug Chris Murray's music, um, and and being that this is a Canadian based ska <laughs> podcast, I was like, wow, this is a pretty good opportunity, and. You know, musically, he's like like Aaron said, he's on. We're on the same page as uh, as him as far as uh, you know, honoring the sort of the the Jamaican ska sound. But um, 
we've also had the privilege of playing with him a, uh, a few times. Um, and I just recall, I think it was back in 2013, we, um, we uh, played a show with him um, in Minneapolis and we actually were able to, to back him on a, uh, on a, a few of his tunes um, just be his backing band. And that was really fun. Cause I mean, his songs are iconic, you know, so getting to sing, you know, rock steady and home and uh, other uh, couple other tunes, it was just really, really like kind of a, an honor. Um, That's super fun. Yeah. It, it's when I think about, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but whenever our Chris Murray plays some of those, solo songs that he has where, you know, you know, his four track or his Walkman recorded ones um, when he plays them with a big band setting, like with a full band, it, it shows you the capability of those songs as um, like, they, they just stand out as really well-written great songs. Yeah. Uh, and sure. they really are benefited from a full band experience. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent agree. And, and even his small combo where he just plays with a bass player and drummer, uh, they they translate and they work very well, and that's and, that, and that's because I think Chris is someone who really understands the essence of '60s Jamaican music, and it is so interesting too that he's able to get that sound and, and feel just from just from playing acoustic guitar. The missing parts of the arrangement, just with his charisma and vocal delivery, and and the soul that he puts into the music. So I mean, what what he does what he does seems very simple, but it is something that you know only only he can do the way that he does it. An inimitable style. Yeah, and it's because he puts so, he, he he puts so much into it in figuring it out. And I mean, I, people could imitate what he does for sure, but I think. In order to do it right, you would have to have the same passion for 60s Jamaican music that Chris does to understand all these little nuanced bits and pieces from it. And you'd have to have a voice like him, too. Let's let's be honest. That's a big part of his uh, his charm and ability as a musician playing ska as a one man band. I think the irony is that nobody has tried to imitate it, too not to the same degree or to the same level. I'm even trying to think of ska bands with acoustic guitars in it. And I can only think of the Popes of Chili town and that's by far not the same style of music. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're doing like uh yeah, D and B style uh, ska music. So it's totally on a different level. Right. So it's, it, but it is interesting that he started doing that in the late nineties and no one's really come along to take that throne. It's almost like he claimed it from the get go. And we just let him sit on that throne till till now. <laughs> he's good at it. Yeah, um, he's I think that's, a good king. He's a good king. <laughs> he's apparatus. Uh, yeah, there we go. Okay, let's do it. Let's take the time scotching back to 1987. All right. So, uh, yeah, this was a hard uh, episode to do research for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I will I will say the Internet has not uh, has really let me down in terms of uh, 
showing me that interviews with Chris Murray exist at this time. And then also those links being dead links. Oh, wow. <laughs> Happened no less than seven times. Holy I was very smokes. frustrated. <laughs> but I uh, I was able to find, uh, you know, on one of those old, like, hold the website uh websites you know the wayback machine or something oh, yeah, like that yep, yep. uh an interview he did with the long island music scene in the early 2000s okay that was fantastic and so almost every bit of trivia i have today is from that uh as well as some stuff from like last fm and all music and all the normal spots i take it from so here we go time scoshing takes us back to 1987 to the birth of checkered past host robert piquette no i'm sorry <laughs> it takes us back to london ontario in the land of the Hickory Sticks, Sweet Home Canada, specifically to the University of Western Ontario, where guitarist Sam Tallow, bassist Mitch Grio, and vocalist Chris Murray connect over their love of two-tone ska. Since there was almost no Canadian ska bands at this time, it was a great time to make their mark. Bring in some hired guns for drums, keys, and the odd horn they recorded, they released their self-released EP, Loud Party became enough of a word of mouth that local music journalist for RPM, Graham Boyce, wanted to put it out on his label, Raw Energy. So here's what Chris said about the scene, the ska scene of Canada at the time. The skinhead thing was still a big part of most places. That was a mixed blessing. Skinheads would show up to shows where no other folks would, but that almost had a downside. There were a lot more fighting at shows back then, and it got in the way of the growth of ska music for a while. Venues would be hesitant to put on ska shows because they didn't want a bunch of skinheads showing up and causing trouble. Still, skinheads were part of the scene, and the scene just felt a little tougher and more street at those days. Unlike today, most people had never heard of ska. Ask anyone who was at a ska band in 1990 how many times they had to explain what it was and see a funny face. For those people who didn't know about ska, the association was with skinheads immediately uh, because they literally intimidated by the reputation. So I don't know if that was the same in the U.S., but I mean, at this time, there were no bands. I, I think Me Mom and Morgan Taller wouldn't be around for three more years, and the Planet Smashers weren't around yet. So yeah, basically, it was King Apparatus and nobody else. Wow. Uh, and it was oh, in nice. London, Ontario. <laughs> so pretty close to Toronto. Pretty close. Yeah. College town. Yeah. So how, how close is close? Like, we talked about... The fourteen-hour drive from Edmonton to Winnipeg. So, so, we're, so we're, are we talking hours. Canada close? No, or are we talking like close, close? What's the? I believe. I think it's GTA, is not. Yeah, I think it's. So, I think it's like actually a suburb of Toronto, or and now is now like being uh, assimilated by Toronto. I guess you could say. Just assimilated. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a train, but Ontario is pretty far from where we are. So, if I Google it, it says that it's a seven-hour flight. Oh wait, that's London, UK. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's the walking long. what the walking directions <laughs> it says two days walking okay uh two two hours on to, to drive from london to toronto okay so you could be if you were in london you'd be seeing shows in toronto you'd be probably playing shows in toronto as well there's a very good chance cool but, but I, have a, I have a small bit of um, prize fighter trivia, Canadian related to Toronto. <laughs> Hit me. That's um, fun. When we last time we played there, um, we uh, we were on our way to the Montreal Ska Festival, um, where we were playing with uh, we were the backing band for Roy uh, Panton and Yvonne Harrison, and but we picked up a, a Toronto gig along the way, but it was. Um, we didn't have like visa or 
like or papers for that show. And so right. we couldn't really promote it um, because we didn't want the border customs people to, to harass us or anything about it. Um, so the, the bar that we played at, I don't even remember what it was, but they, they booked us as secret reggae USA. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you change your name? That's the, that's what we book ourselves at hotels. Secret, as reggae, secret reggae USA. USA. Is awesome. <laughs> How was the show? So we, we had, I keep, we keep bugging people about Toronto shows cause cat bite was on and talked about what a nightmare show they had in Toronto. So how was your show in Toronto? At Secret Reggae USA. I mean, it was fine. <laughs> it, was, okay. it wasn't a very big show, um, but we we got to uh, we played with. Um, I can't remember the name of the band. Adam's um, Mind, the, the band. Adam's Mind. Before. Yeah, but we we met uh, their front man uh, Ron Poon, and he's I think he does he play with the King Kong Four now. Anyway, uh, oh, he was King a really cool, so it was like a really cool guy. Had a really fun time. But yeah, there was like, you know, only a handful of people there. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think we couldn't promote it. <laughs> One of the horn players in that band was also in the Planet Smashers too. So it was cool to uh, to play with one of the Planet Smashers at least. <laughs> which one? Do you remember which horn player? Uh, sax player, I believe. I I don't recall. This was 10, 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Oh. Was that Alex probably? Probably at that time. Was he very French? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah that was Alex, Alex yeah, for sure. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. We act like we know them. We like met them one time and we're like, oh, yeah. Alex, well, well, they only the got most, two. The most French person that I met in Toronto, at least. <laughs> that tracks. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, that tracks a lot. Yeah. Not a lot of French people in Toronto, as weird as that is to say. <laughs> They're not far from Montreal, so they'll just go there. It's a lot easier. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, he, was, he was super cool um very very nice and he was seemed to, to dig our band a lot so uh yeah even though we didn't have the uh the advantage of promoting ourselves as playing there and and quite honestly i don't know how big of a difference that would have made i don't know how many people in toronto knew about us in in 2013 but uh for the people who were at the show it was it was a lot of fun and always cool to play in a new set new city and uh but yeah, it, it was a kind of joke that we we kind of bounced off Toronto because because we didn't uh, acknowledge that we were actually playing there. Toronto didn't really grant us access to really enjoy the city and to to take it in. So <laughs> we, we saw just a, a, a brief part of the city and then uh, and played, and then we had to be on the road right away. But Toronto's always been a place where I wanted to go and visit and spend spend a lot of time and 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 check it out because it seems like such a vibrant and diverse city so that was the uh that was the downside i guess to just playing a quick show there is i didn't really get to experience much of that city next tour also come to edmonton yeah sure (laughs) secret Uh, reggae usa tour 2024 (laughs) let's do it i'm in so uh, the success of this EP uh, was leveraged into the release of the band's proper self-titled album in 1991. The official drummer at this point is Brian Christopher with Paul Rustin rounding out guitar and Tim Lane on the keys for this six piece. They are a no horn band, although horns show up on the album because they have horn friends. Uh, a horn section joined for the recording and engineer. Uh, the engineering duties was handled by their old drummer. That's, uh, that's how you do it at the time. 
they set themselves apart. Uh, uh, sorry, they set themselves apart at this time. With their high speed two tone mixed with punk, rockabilly, surf, and blues, with the emphasis on guitar, uh, classic harmonies, and keyboards. Let's listen to Nonstop Drinking. This is uh, uh, this album I really feel like is the bridge between the Toasters and the Planet Smashers. I can definitely hear that, yeah. <laughs> so I had not listened to King or Apparatus at all before. Oh, really? And when this album started playing, it got two songs in, and I was like, this is the most Canadian thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Elaborate, Joey. It, like, like this blues-based sound, this boogie-woogie thing that he's doing is, like, so emblematic of early 90s Canadian indie rock. Yeah. It, it's Whoa, all okay. super blues-based, like Wide Mouth Mason and um, I'm sure Big Sugar was, like, basically a blues band. It's, it's all just so heavily blues-based. Toronto's, like... All of like the rock and roll bands that come out of Toronto, especially at that time, were all like super heavily blues based. It just sounds there's some quality about it that's so Canadian, and I couldn't get over it the entire time I was listening to it. To be honest, yeah, there's something about the the vocal harmonies on the, on on these King Apparatus songs and and on this album where it yeah it, it sounds like it's from a different genre and i couldn't put my finger on which genre it, it it's like emulating yeah if you imagine too the tragically hip were also really popular i get yes and like, the next album way more i actually have sure. a song i queued up that i was like this sounds like the fucking hip like this is ridiculous but of course that would have been like the biggest thing at the time as well yeah right which 100%. is all like kind of rootsy like just G- generic rootsiness uh like there's you know what i mean <laughs> just roots just rooting, like rooting rooting around down there. music you can kind of come across uh which well, is like so here's, 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 here's a question that, uh, that i have um how like how how i want to know how big or how much of an impact king apparatus made in the like the toronto area at the time because it, it is interesting to hear you say that the the kind of bluesy kind of stuff was uh was a common feature of the, the Toronto indie rock scene at the time. So King Apparatus coming in and playing that and you know, being a part of that sort of sound, but introducing the sky element to it, which was something that I guess was very unique and new at that point. Uh, I'm sure that that helped people, uh, you know, who may not have been aware of ska or just not big ska fans at the time. It, it must've been a little bit easier for them to recognize it as something uh, that was part of their musical lexicon, you know, at least like, you know, the, the local kind of stuff. Like did, did that help the band get like establish a, a foothold better? Would you, would you think? It's, it's almost like you read my notes. Please play <laughs> the next song made for TV. Weirdly, this song was like a modern rock hit. For King Apparatus. Makes sense. Yeah. It's a boogie woogie song. Yeah. So this got like so much music. The MTV of Canada. 
rotated this video like crazy. It was like a massive push for them, and it was huge on college radio. So college radio is, I don't know what it's like in the, in the U.S., but in Canada, our college radio situation is, is massive because it's all like donor-funded, and it's all kind of like weirdo music. It's almost like Triple J in the in Australia. And so they just would hammer this song. Well, in Canada, they can... Over uh, and over again. And maybe they come out here. But yeah. I just don't know, in Canada, they're, they, there's like arts grants for musicians to record and to yeah. They, yeah. get the music out there, which like we don't have here in the States. So that's that's such an incredible boon to, to bands getting their music out there. And in the 90s, it was even... Like there was way more funding for that sort of thing. Like at, like everywhere else, a lot of it's been slashed yeah. since then. But like at that time, it was like I remember. Well, much music was popping. We had a lot of like homegrown rock stuff, different varieties of rock at the time, and like almost all of it was funded with some sort of government grant or something. And when yeah, CanCon yeah. is factored in, which is our Canadian content laws, like the fact that there's a certain amount of Canadian content has to be on the air, regardless of what you are. College oh, radio, much music. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, if you, and it's not saying that anybody gets on the radio, it's almost like you niche into the radio or you niche onto much music sure. because you're doing something unique enough that grabs the hosts, that gets you on the air, and then you stay there. Staying power totally. is big. Like, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that that's that's awesome. Uh, I had forgotten about that. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that. That's one of the the handful of King Apparatus songs that I know because uh, I I saw the music video for it. I think it was on the um, about the Asian Man Records video comp tape. I think it was on that, like the ten minutes from Okikubo Station or, or whatever it was called. Oh yeah, so that was that was like my first introduction to King Apparatus. Like I, I knew Chris Murray's music before that, but that's cool that that song was was getting a lot of airplay, like video and and the single. That's that's really cool. I, I uh, went to the the Asian Man fifteen year anniversary, I think, in San Francisco, and that I uh, Mike Park was had uh, these King Apparatus CDs, so I picked up both of these albums. Um, it was the first time I'd even heard of them, and he's like, "Yeah, you like Chris Murray? This is his band," and it was like it was really cool. Um, but the thing is that I, th- I think it's cool is uh, I was re-listening to this and I realized um, I ran into the the guys from the band Monkey um, when I was mm-hmm. at Asian Man uh, Fest and they they kept saying, <laughs> uh, what did they say? It was, Buy our stuff, make us rich, which I always thought was like a funny chant, you know, and I thought maybe it was, and then I'm listening to this album again. I'm like, Oh, this is, this is from this album. Like <laughs> the whole buyer merch thing. Yeah. yeah. Buyer, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about the, that, that song being in heavy rotation for a while. Um, that, that, that just reminds me of the, the perspective that I gained, uh, when, when we were working with, uh, like the after beating Barry Moore's and those other bacteria buffet bands. And even, you know, learning more about stomp records and, and all the, the Canadian Scott stuff uh, is that when, you know, we, we talk about the, the, you know, the 90s Scott boom and then the crash that happened right after that. And in realizing that the crash didn't really hit Canada nearly as much as it did, did in the United States, the bottom didn't fall out in a lot of the Canadian scenes as much because they had, more vibrant 
underground scenes or or just or more labels that dedicated and nothing against anything about you know things that happened in in the u.s or or you know bands label scenes whatever but i do wonder if the uh you know financial and cultural commitments to the arts in canada helped ska music stay afloat more and and kept it as a, a viable scene rather than rather than something that was profitable for a little bit and then very unprofitable which which we saw tons of bands jump ship or change their sound or just break up after you know you know around like 99 2000 or so uh we're on a five-year tape delay uh because like i think the biggest ska record for canada would have been life of the party the which was like 2000, I want to say, maybe Something 99. Like that, yeah. Uh, and then, and so we picked up from there, I guess. Um, and so I guess as long as the Planet Smashers were doing big, like Canada Ska was doing big, I, well, I don't want to put it say- on their shoulders, but like they really drove, and because they own Stomp and were signing Ska bands all over Canada uh, and then dragging them with them across country tours, like that yeah. was a big part of it. I was going to say that I don't think it's so much the government grants and funding that help um build a band out that way um because you can only really get them for recording and stuff you can't get them for touring you can't get them for merch or anything like that like a lot of the stuff where a band is really able to push their boundaries and, and get more fans and bring more people in like the the way the funding works is more so like your album can sound a lot better and you can get a better studio instead of just recording at home, which now everyone just records at home anyways. But either way, I think it was the, the tour. And I think the fact like Edmonton in particular has like a scene that like, if Edmonton likes a band that it doesn't really matter whether that band's cool anywhere else, we'll just keep supporting them. And Edmonton has a pretty strong, community of people who will just go out to places where there's bands playing music to dance to like ska like there's a handful of ska bands that if they kept coming through edmonton through the quote-unquote dark ages they kept doing well mad caddies was one of them uh um, real big fish real big fish oh, planet smash train did well westbound yeah. train like all those bands like mm-hmm. anytime they come through edmonton they do great because edmonton likes those bands but fostering uh its own scene is difficult in Edmonton, but we have problems with venues and stuff too. So it is what it is. It's Edmonton's a tricky place to, to have a band, but in my opinion, in Canada in general, I think the strength of those bands relies on the fact that everyone's just willing to tour. Yeah. We have three big scenes. You got Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. Uh, and then I guess kind of when we're us in the Everything middle, in between every, yeah, the, us in the prairies, we're just kind of relying on them to get on the bus and tour. But like K Man's been here like frick a million times. Oh yeah, he's here every six it, months. Yeah, so nice. like some people are just doing it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And there is a certain type of Canadian musician who finds a niche and is able to do two cross two or three cross Canada tours a year and do something music related at home and able to make like a half decent living and put out stuff pretty regularly. Like K Man, someone who, like that, you know and the guys in the planet smashers same deal you know like they'll do a you know two or three cross canada tours usually in a year and they do whatever at home and it's all kind of able to keep it afloat like it's i don't know it, i'd imagine it's a tough situation to get in in any market like mm. just kind of being able to self-sustain the music kind of deal but like there's 
when an artist gets there in Canada, it seems they're able to, if they're able to kind of keep their audience, they can just keep doing it. Oh yeah. It just never stops. Sloan. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk about Sloan in a second, actually. No, yeah, well, that, that's, that's great though. Um, Cause yeah, I just, I just remember here, you know, tail end of the, the nineties, how, you know, just got being so, so big and then, then gone, you know, it's, it's interesting just to, to note how, how my experience was different from a lot, a lot of um, my Scott fan friends in, in Canada. So it's, it's great getting uh, both of your perspectives on that too. And uh, I'm just uh, in the interest of time. I think is now is a great time to take a break. Cool. And uh, when we get back more King apparatus, more Chris Murray. This episode of Checkered Past is brought to you by Blendjet. Slynn, you like to make smoothies? I make smoothies every single morning. Tell me about your smoothie journey. Well, I it's my only way I can get vegetables in my body because I like yummy brown golden fried delicious things. So I often call it my scurvy juice to prevent scurvy. What do you put in your smoothies every morning? Um, well, I am a little spinach bitch and a banana. Pro tip, bananas make every smoothie taste good. Okay, banana, chocolate oat milk, and some like legit peanut butter, a little bit of spinach. You're laughing and that tastes like a delicious treat. Well, I just got a blend jet. What? And I've actually been able to make my smoothies fresher because I'll put the ingredients in and take it with me to work because it's portable. And I'll make my smoothie like right, right, right before I drink it. You hit the nail on the head because Blendjet 2 by Blendjet is portable. So you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet. So you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. Lasts for 15 blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. We got a couple Blendjet 2s. I got mine with like the black marble. It's like a fancy like it's very, faux marble Yeah, it's, it's got like kind of some doodly energy to it, yeah, I guess. a little mask. Uh, it's a little mask. I'm not a, always masked. I have masked. a leopard print I got, one. I do some fems. Leopard print? Talk to me about your leopard print. It's pretty fucking fun. There was another leopard print there was that we, another were, one. we were spying. I, but like it was rainbow leopard. It was Lisa fucking Frank. Lisa fucking Frank, Lisa y'all. Fucking Frank. There's all kinds of crazy ass colors. That's one of the best things about Blendjet too. So here's what you need to do. Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promer code. The promer code. Use that promer code checkered12 to checkered get 12% 12. off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code CHECKERED12 Checkered 12. to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Get it for your scurvy juice. Lisa fucking Frank. <laughs> Welcome back to Checkered Past. We're here with the prize fighters. It's Rob and Joey, and we're talking King Apparatus. So we just talked a little bit about their debut album, and this is what happened right after. In 1993, the band leveraged the good fortune of the record to uh, get their anticipated follow-up, Marbles, which again is issued on the friendly label Raw Energy. 
It failed to get the same level of support and success of the first album, so the band chose to part ways in favor of Montreal's Cargo Records, who had just got upstreamed to MCA and had signed bands like No Means No, The Smalls, Sloan, SNFU, and Me, Mom, and Morgenthaler. Just naming all the bands we already talked about. Hey, the Smalls are fucking at Edmonton band. Uh, that is Corblund's band. It is. Yeah. Is does Corblund have any like appeal outside of Alberta? I feel like that's like an Alberta person. Have you guys heard of Corblund? Not familiar. No, I haven't. He is no. a folk country dude who used to be in a punk band. Yeah. Yeah, called the Smalls. Yeah, he kind of does like. It's it's very much like old school, old school country. That's yeah. kind of his thing. He kind of does what y'all do, but with country. <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. He's yeah. he's cool. It's just it's it's just interesting that he is gigantic in Alberta. Like, oh, huge! He's yeah. huge here in Canada. I think. Yeah, he's, maybe. He's a pre- Probably. He's like a Canadian. Like he's a, also a big producer, so yes. that kind of all kind of gets tied together. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to spend like uh, too too much time uh, on the second King Apparatus album because I think we covered a lot on the first one. And I do want to play the same songs. <laughs> yeah, it's half the same songs. So I'll play two tracks off of here. Let's start with Michael and Anne because that's the most streamed song that they have. Second album was like a bit, I don't want to call it heavier, but the guitar is like guitar y. Yeah. It's more of that blues rockiness. Like it makes sense that this is their most streamed. They love to have the chorus up front. Oh, yeah. King Apparatus, all about the chorus first, first, second, which is a big mad bomber move. It is a a music. You, you know, sort of thing nowadays. It's, you you have the, the chorus or the hook like, immediately in the song. Yeah, so it can be on TikTok. He was just ahead King of the curve. apparatus was the original TikTok. <laughs> That's a good point, Joey. <laughs> you heard it here first. So I'm here. This song is just stupidly catchy, though. It well, is. It, I've, I've heard Chris do this one in his sets, uh, his solo sets, so that it, it had some staying power. Sweet. The other song I wanted to play off Marbles is the track Stumbling that I, I alluded to earlier that I think sounds like the Tragically Hip. Or R.E.M. even. Got like R.E.M. vibes. Yeah. Or, uh, I'm trying to think of... There's got to be some like other Canadian bands that have this vibe. It's very like that Canadian indie rock scene though, for yeah. sure. There's so much more guitar. And even his delivery is really like, uh, on these songs in particular, is, is a lot more kind of rock like and Elvis roll. Cost- yeah, Elvis yeah. Costello. Elvis Costello. Yes. There it, yeah, is. there it is. Figured it out. Scott Jason. Elvis Costello is very Scott Jason. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I tried to... Uh, I tried to get into an, like a, an archery contest with Elvis Costello one time. <laughs> Fucked up. This is aim is true. Is oh. what I did there. Oh. Joey didn't yeah, quite get yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't quite get there. <laughs> that was probably would have lost then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we come for the jokes, right? Anyway, um, King Apparatus. Uh, this was their their two their two albums. Um, there was. 
quite a gap in between these two albums, I believe. No, it's marked weird on Spotify because oh, okay. that was the reissue. They're like two years apart. Okay, that yeah. makes a lot more sense. Um, but what I want to talk about now that we've gone through their history before we get into solo Chris Murray, Mr. Chris, uh, it's time for an edition of one of my favorite new segments, Label She's the Bomb. We're going to talk yeah. about cargo records so strap in this one's a juicy one i got very excited okay this is a segment i do where i talk about record labels <laughs> um while this name may not mean much abroad it has serious weight in canada formed by three employees of bonaparte records in montreal in 1987 cargo formed with the notion of signing local talent while also being the primary distribution label of mid-market indie labels in the canada and the u.s such as Mint, Epitaph, Discord, Tang, SST, and Sub Pop. If you Rad. wanted to know why you were able to get a lot of hot bands like Green Day, The Offspring, No Effects, Rancid, Nirvana, and Soundgarden before they were able to get their before they were on their major labels, it's because of Cargo. Cool. This deal obviously meant that in 1994 and 1995 they were making serious bank and had over two percent of the market share of the total record industry. Wow. Uh, and that made them the largest active Canadian-owned label at the time. The only other label that was bigger than them was Quality Records. And Joey, would you happen to know what Quality Records was in charge of? Uh, like KTEL and stuff, but then also like Heart and bands like that. Much Dance oh, and Big much... Shiny Tunes. Oh. So they only did that in the mid-90s. They basically gave up artists. And just focused on doing compilations. Big Shiny Tunes was it was big, huge. And they were bigger than an active record label that because they were just doing these two compilations. Does not surprise yeah. me. So, but what goes up must come down. A, the label was taken over by a couple of businessmen who actually were rather ignorant of the music industry and wanted to make a quick buck. They spent all the liquid cash the company had from their hits to open up new offices and expand the staffing. They would offer labels expensive lock-in contracts and would generally make poor business decisions. This hit the head when Cargo began printing copies that didn't match orders. HMV stopped stocking their products because they wouldn't fulfill their orders. Labels reported having mismatched orders for their distribution, and some labels with distribution deals full-blown did not get paid. Worst of these was Mint, Canada's Mint Records, mm -hmm. whose failures to not pay their artist wound up with one of those artists leaving. That artist, Gob. That album, Too Late No Friends. Wow. It was one of the biggest uh, financial mistakes in the in Canadian record history. That's a crazy good album. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, wild. And Gob did not get paid for it. That's Isn't that fucked, fucked up. up. <laughs> so by 1997, Cargo lost 75% of its business. In a stroke of capitalism, this was good news for Koch Records, Outside and Sonic Onion, who up to this point did not do distribution, but then shifted, bought all the distro deals that the um, that Cargo left on the table. Those three labels only do distribution now. So they just wow. like bought up all those contracts that got left aside. And they're like, well, then they're not doing it. We'll just do it. Uh, the new owners blamed the decline of alt rock, but the reality was that that was true for everyone. These guys just kind of sucked at it. They tried to sell to a music software com uh, company, but after they did a deep dive into their business, saw that they had a bunch of irregularities and quashed the deal. The company filed for bankruptcy with $3.7 million in unpaid debts 
and 500 unpaid unsecured creditors. The largest was Epitaph, who was out to lunch $500,000. Holy shit. And the original owners, who were also out $500,000. So while, <laughs> so that's the story of cargo records that uh, King Apparatus was once a part of. Man, they really, that really <laughs> fucked over Mr. Brett. Yeah, I'm sure he's like blowing his nose with five hundred thousand dollar bills right now. I don't think he's, <laughs> I don't think he's doing too bad. I wouldn't want to be on his bad side though. Ah, uh, anyway, I thought that was wild. That was fucking banana story. That's that, a cr- yeah. and you know what? I've seen uh, a lot of CDs that I had back in the day had cargo records on it, and I had no idea what the yeah. story was. That's a wild, wild ride. Holy smokes! So while Cargo used its international distribution network to reissue uh, the King Apparatus records, uh, they inevitably decided that the hard touring was too much and King Apparatus broke up in 1994 with Chris Murray uh, moving to the U.S. to delve into his rock steady roots and uh, Girio forming the King Kong 4. So the aforementioned King Kong 4. Cool. So now we follow Chris Murray on his journey to California under the name Venice Shoreline Chris. While sometimes dabbling with his reggae band One, Chris really gained a fondness for DIY, so he grabbed a four-track, his acoustic guitar, and put nine tracks down onto an album called The Four-Track Adventures of Venice Shoreline Chris, which was originally issued on Moon and then later on Asian Man. But we'll talk about the first one first. So uh, before we talk to, uh, more about it, let's listen to a track. We have Rocksteady. Like, if you ever mention Chris Murray's name, this song just starts playing in my head. I uh, I played it. I was uh, driving my son around somewhere, and I played this song because I was listening to the album in preparation for this episode. And we listened to two more songs. He's like, I thought it was in that first one again. <laughs> yeah, good. Why? This song may have also introduced the term Rocksteady to a lot of people. Probably, yeah, this before, no doubt, had their album called Rocksteady, so this was uh, probably how a lot of people first heard that term as, as far as like an actual genre of music. And this was 96, so Ska was just about to be popular, like, like, like maybe Time Bomb was out around this time, right? right? Uh, maybe Tragic Kingdom was out already. Like this was just on the cusp of it becoming kind of like a mainstream genre. Uh, so yeah, it would have been absolutely. Again, to Chris's point, he was, he was explaining ska to people who didn't know what it was his whole life, and now he's probably having to explain Rocksteady to everybody and, <laughs> and Blue right? Yeah, but this this time he's doing it a little more simply, I suppose. And this is uh, the the four track um, he did. So we're start we're doing a trilogy of albums that are all kind of in the same vibe, very low fi. Um, this particular one was done with a four track recorder, uh, and he does everything: drums and the guitar and the vocals, and he just overlays it over top of each other. Sometimes there's some organ in there, um, but this is a, a solo act. This is a, a one-man band, if you will, at this time. In the days before, just recording on your laptop. Mm-hmm. 
in the days before Rage Against the Machine, the sure. one-man band from undergrads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> More CanCon. Is that a Canadian show? I think so. God damn it. I'm just accidentally doing it now. <laughs> uh, how do we feel about the uh, the four-track adventures of Venice Shoreline Chris? Yeah, I love that record. I first heard Chris Murray on on some comp, and it was uh, Brave New Brian. So I don't know how long it was until I actually heard that that record. It was probably around like 98, 99 or so that I first heard it. But that that was the only Chris Murray album out at the time. So I absorbed that very thoroughly. So yeah, I, I still love that record a lot. And that's it's cool because he actually is doing more multi-track on that. Kind of that's this transition from you know being in a full band to being just uh, you know a, a singer and guitar player. So it's cool that he experimenting with you know percussion and, and and organ and you know other other stuff like that in the mix on 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 all those songs. Are, are they all are all the songs featuring multiple instruments on that record? I think most of them are. I think there was one that was just him and a guitar. Uh, I think the last track was just him and a guitar, but right. everything else was four tracked. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's also cool to note that you know he was living in, um, you know, LA area at that time, but also you know spending time collaborating with other ska artists at the time. So he he was uh, he appeared on the the Ocean Eleven. CD, uh, doing vocals on that on a few songs. So they're they're a great cover of of "Solid as a Rock" by the Castle Sisters or Lee Perry and the Dynamites, depending on what credit you're looking at. Um, does vocals on that, and, and it's it's fantastic. Um, so he was he was connected with the sort of cream of the crop ska like traditional ska scene in LA um, at that at that time too. So it's cool that to know that he was interacting, you know, in, in that, in that scene too. So I don't know how much of an influence that had on him. I, I know he's had plenty of influence on, on that scene, um, you know, as, as a songwriter and collaborator. Cause I know he was like, he told a story about living with, uh, you know, staying with Greg Lee from Hepcat for a while. And, and he co-wrote, I can't wait with, uh, with Greg Lee with the, you know, for them, from their uh, right on time album. So he was, you know, working with, with these other bands, but interesting that he was just working with them as a collaborator, but not joining those bands. He, he wanted to be his own thing, you know, even though he could have easily formed a band like, you know, like King Apparatus. But so I, I'm, I'm curious to, to know more of how that worked out with his journey, uh, you know, moving to Southern California and, making that decision to be a solo artist just when you having those connections. Yeah. When you read the interviews or you listen to him talk about that whole time, it's really interesting. He's very, um, he, he loves to talk about things like the time that the specials, uh, were in, were in a basement jamming with him because he was carrying their equipment around for a tour or, um, when he collaborated with the Slackers on what was the project that there's a New York project that he was a part of. I think it was, I think it was the whole thing. One of those uh, New York, like part of that, that group. And he was involved with it. He loved that. It was a one-off. 
like somebody asked him like how's that band going he's like oh that was more of like a project that we all work together on um yeah i think it was just that filled his cup he loved to not be tethered down to one thing he liked the freedom to kind of choose what he wanted to do and follow his sort of feelings at the time like i want to do more reggae stuff now i want to do maybe more ska stuff now oh these people are doing something interesting i'd love to hang out with them for a little while and then go back to doing what i was doing before um so i i do think it has a little bit to do i don't know if it was like he's a i don't think it's necessary because he's like a type a personality and likes the control it's more like he'd prefer to just let the winds take him where he want where where they may definitely seems that way yeah yeah, that, yeah that's cool that does, that does seem like a very chris thing to do so i really would love uh joey to talk about this album um <laughs> because so full disclosure joey and i are acoustic guitar skeptics uh and joey i think maybe even more so (laughs) honestly i generally speaking the singer songwriter acoustic guitar thing is not for me at all uh i don't really like it i I definitely don't listen to that type of music uh like in a recorded fashion Mm -hmm. but i do appreciate it as like a live format and when i was listening to these this trilogy of records, if you want to call it that. I do, yeah. Um, <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> uh, I really got the vibe that, uh, to your point earlier, um, he's really good at filling out all of the other instrumentation as he's playing just his acoustic guitar and adding, you know, some thumps and a little keyboard here and there mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he's really good at, like, making you imagine what a whole band could sound like. And I think by the time I got into the second one a little bit further, I had kind of realized that the way he's recording these is because is, is like the way he wants them to sound, but all of these songs would likely end up in a live band situation. And he probably has all of that worked out and it probably sounds fucking awesome. So that's kind of how I was looking at it. I was, I was kind of looking at it more of like a, an advertisement for what a live band could be because mm-hmm. I don't particularly dig the the acoustic thing, just the acoustic thing. But that being said, um, I did start like my first band was in the era of four track to tape stuff. I, we did a little bit of that recording. And so I appreciate the, this is not lo-fi that turns me off. Like we've talked about that where a lot of older punk just isn't really for me. Cause it just sounds like shit. This has a lo-fi quality that I like dig. Like it makes it sound cool. It makes it sound uh, authentic or like kind of gives it a soulful warmth or something yeah, like that. It's a bit more of an intimate nature with it, I think. It's just, you can tell that it's not, it's not polished at all. It's just, I mean, he uses, I don't want to say raw because that's obviously very endemic to, you know, his, his vibe, but it does have that intimate quality of it where it's just, this is, it sounds so full, even though it's so sparse. Yes, for sure. The thing about Chris too, is like, I mean, when I first started listening to him and knowing who he was and what he was doing, my, it was, it was obviously like very good written music, very good, you know, performance of the vocals and both, 
I felt like it let my mind kind of, or imagination just kind of wander and go, Oh, I could, I, you know, I can see this being, you know, this instrumentation. I could, I can hear these backing vocals, but even though they're not maybe even there, like, and I'm not even, I'm not like Aaron where like he writes a lot of our music. I, I'm not that type of person, but listening to Chris, it's like, I feel like I can be that person. Cause I, I, I can, the, the sparseness of the song, I, I can imagine what the fullness of the, of the uh, arrangement could be. Yeah, it's very fun music to like sing harmonies to. <laughs> no like doubt. Car, yeah. Like I, I, I caught myself doing that a few times oh, yeah, because me he's too. because he just hammers the choruses home like five times in a song, right? So by the time the second or third time it comes around, you're singing along to it, and then <clears throat> it's just him. So it's sing weird harmonies and stuff. It's fun. <laughs> I, I think Chris has a this this really special ability to reach people on a musical level. Um, like, you know, I've, I've played Chris Murray for people who, you know, aren't really ska fans, not that they actively dislike it, but it's just not something they're into, but there's that appeal. And, and maybe it is because it is so stripped down like that. And people are used to the singer songwriter sort of vibe that, um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel so out of place. Like there, you know, when I think when a lot of people hear, hear ska and they hear horns, especially if it's more of like the, the rock kind of kind of sound somewhere like king apparatus they'll you hear a rock song and there's horns on it and that's like oh that's 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 a bit different from the rock i i know but just with uh the stripped down stuff they that chris does it does seem like it has a, a little more universal universal appeal because it is it's catchy but there's not there's not a ton that's that you're listening for so so yeah you can you can think about you know sing along to it it's it's uh it's accessible in in the best sense of that word and, and so this is what uh chris actually had to say about um what his influences were while he was uh, recording this one he said if someone told me i could see only three ska bands next year i'd pick the slackers go jimmy go and scatolites roots right now i'm still in love with playing ska and reggae but i don't think twice about playing anything that feels right to me if i had to name my own sub subgenre i'd probably call it ska folk because i think that sounds pretty cool but that's a pretty narrow way to classify what i do as far as i can judge roots is where my head at whether that's bluegrass or dub reggae and so yeah i think that that really speaks especially when we get into the next album which we'll be talking about in a second but first it's good to know what chris was doing between 96 and like 2000 so lo-fi acoustic would be his corner of the market. Uh, and during this time, rather than focus on just his solo material, he actually took his hand at producing and he helped out then rising Montreal based ska group, the planet smashers. He produced two of their albums at this time, uh, attack of the planet smashers in 97 and the aforementioned life of the party in 2000 before running, uh, returning to California. This is what he said about the experience producing the planet smashers. Uh, both times I've worked with them. I've gotten, involved in the songwriting that I was surprised by. Typically they'd have about seven songs fully written, another three or four half written, and then we'd need to come up with two or three from scratch. So there's a fair bit of writing involved in the effort of making the albums. Basically they wanted to make a classic studio record, which involved intense overdub and constructing the tracks more than making a recording of what they do live. That way of making an album can be a lot of painstaking work, but it meshed well with my own approach to four-track recording, where I play each part separately and layer the parts to come up with the final track. So interesting enough, 
the uh, the process of him doing these four track recordings is what helped him get a head start in producing two of pretty much most classic Planet Smashers records. And it's interesting to hear that they he helped write them, yeah, <laughs> which is wild. actually fantastic because those are very clean records in terms of songs. Not a lot of like uh, Chris on his solo stuff doesn't have a lot of fat in the in the songs. And the same is true for Planet Smashers tracks. They're very like clean two and a half minute songs concise concise interesting to say that it's a studio record and it's not translated live because when you see them live it sounds exactly like the record yeah absolutely (laughs) like but i but i understand what he's talking about from like a like if you really are diving into classic genres or whatever all that stuff would have been recorded mainly live with a couple of overdubs so it makes sense what he's talking about i I get it i suppose (laughs) Uh, the folding of Moonska meant he needed a new home, and this is when he got hooked up with Mike Park uh, for Asian Man, and so around the, the late 90s, um, when then the Asian Man version of the same record came out, Venice Shoreline Chris, and then the second, and then the old King Apparatus records came out again uh, in 99 and 2000. So the second solo Chris record was sort of in anticipation of all of those reissues. Uh, so 2001 was the impossible to pronounce four track Kanza. <laughs> uh, again, you know, I'm not one to like, you know, harp on people's. No, I am. But like, that's a pretty rough pun. Um, so Chris said this about this record. The motivation for that album was very similar to the four track adventures. At one point, I realized I had a bunch of tracks I was really grooving on and that I wanted to put out. Personally, I think four track Kanza is a lot more diverse than my first solo. Shafil is more consciously focused on 90, 1960s Jamaican vibes. The evolution parallels with the way my own mentality about my music has grown towards an all-inclusive roots attitude. So let's play Dinosaurs from that record. This is a standout track. I love yeah, this song was fun. was newly forming and mankind has yet to be. Lived a mighty race of giants, strong of claws and sharp of teeth. Dinosaur. I was kind of just listening to it, and then this one came on, and I was like, dinosaurs? Ocean, <laughs> oh, is that what we're singing about now? And I got really into it. But he's saying that humans are going to go extinct like the dinosaurs. Yeah. And I was making a puff of steam or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nuclear holocaust. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Are we still worried about nuclear holocaust? We were really worried about it for a while there. I mean, I think it's. I think we've been living at uh, two minutes to midnight for so long that it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how, how do we feel about the the second four track record? I'm gonna I'm gonna just say my piece. I didn't like it as much. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't much care for, and I I'll be also fully honest. I had never heard it before. I didn't know it existed. I thought wow. it went four track adventures to raw. So I actually didn't know this was in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but I thought I, I I guess I just don't like the just straight ahead like bluesy rootsy stuff. And so it wasn't it didn't really click with me as much as the first uh, one, which was just basically all rock steady and ska. So. Oh, uh, how do you feel about it? I was looking at the track list because uh, to refresh my memory of what what's actually on this one. Um, the the song "One Everything" 
is uh, you, uh, Joey was saying, like uh, talking about singing back backing vocals, like just that song I will play and sing backing vocals all day long. I just like, I don't know what it is about that song. It's just beautiful. The rest of this, the album though, I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, I mean, there's some fun stuff on there, but yeah, it, it's not as, not as memorable. I don't think as some of his other stuff. I think it's like, there's a lot of detours. It's kind of like playing around with stuff. Um, I'm looking at like some of the songs, science fiction, double, I, I double was, feature. I was going to say, I liked science fiction, double feature and the reprise, but I dug that. Not me so much. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. This is another album that I, I listened to the, to the shit out of. Um, and uh, yeah, I, Brave New Brian is on this one. Not, not the first one. But, so that being the first song that I heard by him was uh, something that drew me to this. And I don't know me. I did not know for, like for years, like th- that science fiction double feature, I thought, oh, this this doesn't really sound like a Chris Murray song, but it's all right. And then much later realized <laughs> that it's the uh, you know theme from Rocky, Rocky Horror. Horror. Yeah. <laughs> so that 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 was like one song that stood out to me. It's like I don't know if I'm really into that song. It doesn't really seem like his 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 thing. You I mean, came to appreciate it in time, but um, that's funny. <laughs> but th- this this record though did feel more like more established now i don't want to say more polished because i know that's that that doesn't really vibe with the the raw and roots thing that that chris has cultivated but it did seem like it was a maturing of his approach and i agree kind of like like you're mentioning the work that he did with with planet smashers and in you know co-writing and and producing those those uh couple albums the the advantage of the boon that he was able to bring to that was his, you know, understanding of, of, of music, you know, through a Scotland's learning how to structure a song and everything by, by, you know, by laying down the different components to it, but in a, in his own way, in, in, in sort of a non-orthodox manner, I think that is, that is really good critical thinking about, about music and making it sound or making it feel a certain way, having it carry a certain emotion or, or, or just dance vibe or, or, or whatever. So four track Gonza strikes me as an album that was an extension of, you know, him getting more comfortable with the intricacies of playing Scott and reggae in a way that was following the, the soul of the music. I would imagine that's kind of what he talks about with roots is like, what is the, what is that the foundation to, uh, uh, as the, of the art form of the music, you know, not necessarily, you know, the, the formula, like, Oh, this has to have horns. This has to have, you know, this and that. Uh, so thinking about the transitions of, of his various records, it, it, I th- I think that's really fascinating to audibly chart what you know he's exploring the music more and and creating great songs al- along the way. You know, it's not like this was you know some experimentation, but but seeing the how he was approaching, you know, produce, producing his own music. That's I that's a really interesting um, 
a point and it kind of like dovetails into like the next kind of phase that he goes into almost a, oh, just a year later. So if we think of, uh, you know, he started with Venice Shoreline Chris, which is his first track attempt at four tracking goes then to produce a couple uh, records in Montreal comes back, makes a more polished to your point version, expanded, expanded yeah. version of the four track recording that seems a little bit more confident, even though he's experimenting with the musical section, but the actual production of the four tracking is pretty, pretty on point. Um, then he would decide uh, to do it backwards. It's almost feels like on the next one, he said, well, I think I've mastered how I can four track it. Why don't I strip it down to one track, which is my yeah. Walkman. And then I just, it's just me, my guitar and my Walkman. And I just record that. And so that's, that's what raw ended up being. So that's okay. how we complete the trilogy. So it's not even four tracked, although he did get some good guest vocals on it. So it, I'm just the, uh, the uh, image in my mind of him sitting with his Walkman and getting Neville Staple to sing on a song with him is, is funny to me. Hmm. Uh, but um, it's very interesting to, to talk about this one. This is the record I first heard Chris Murray uh, solo on, which was, uh, which is raw. So let's listen to We Do This Guy. Have that queued up. What I like about this record is his little like intros that he does to kind of explain them. Yeah. This tune is blah blah blah. Yeah. Makes you feel like you're just kind of like sitting in a room with him. Yeah, it, it ups the intimacy and I think it made it more listenable for me personally because it made it was like a show. You know? I love how stripped down and crappy it sounds. Like it sounds much worse than the last two records, but to its benefit. Totally. Yeah. Gives it more of a 60s vibe. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to the intimacy that Aaron was talking about, you know? Like, you feel like you're, uh, you're a fly on the wall, or like you said, you're sitting in the room. Like, it's, it's pretty cool. Like, it makes well, yeah, songs like this, like, really feel like they're, they're, they're yours, like, because he's with you and just hanging and playing with you. Yeah, totally. Uh, and it still has the energy and the feel of the the records that he made earlier and i think the the audio fidelity that he got with it is certainly part of that magic right like but you know when when the price fighters record we're we're very particular with how we try to get the sounds like we we track all at the same time as much as possible so we're all playing together and so there's plenty of microphone bleed and everything but that's how we like to play and that's how we we all vibe off each other and get that energy. You can get that if you're multi-tracking, even if you're multi-tracking by yourself, but it's you know, it's it's different for different people and I think that you know, for Chris to come out with raw and do it just you know, these single tracks, you know, just him and a guitar shows that he has written genre and style and caliber of the things that were on his first album but he's able to strip them back even further boiling down his ska and reggae stuff to the to the essence of how he how he wants to express it so you can you can tell that he loves the music you tell he's he's been studying the music and listening to it and i think that's why this is such a, a classic album and why so many people love it and it's making opus i would say yeah, 
This is this I'd say is like the defining Chris Murray record. I mean, maybe I'm like overblowing its importance, but I really think that it really is like this is what um he's done a lot of great music since, but uh if I were to recommend a record to anybody is check this out because you really get a feel of like how he has mastered his craft. How having not listened <clears throat> to his discography before, uh when I got to this album I already had a pretty good idea that it was going to be like lo-fi e. Yeah. But the songwriting is just stellar. Like it there's the I I found all of the albums a little bit long to be honest. Um yeah. <laughs> and and sometimes I'm like man you you're using physical tape here does this song need to be quite this long? But that being said, like the songwriting on Raw is just like way tighter. So way tight tighter. and it's so yeah. it's like all the songs are it's it's crazy that they don't really get samey. No. You know and what it, I mean? And like we, it's the other thought I had too is when we think about like we were talking about the the Jamaican patois earlier and um like he does it a few times on this record too but it's so much more earned than before it feels like he's more like tapped into it. So when I think of songs like Rostamon or Hire the Monkey Climb or the Penny Song, yeah. Uh they really feel like <laughs> We, we were joking on the Discord about uh, uh, Sammy Come a Jail on the first record about how kind of cringe that song is. Uh, and it doesn't, he doesn't quite nail what he's going for. Um, but when it's, when you look at the same, what he, he's going for the same types of things on Raw, but nails it. Like, and it's weird to go from one where he was not quite nailing it to totally nailing it on, on Raw. And I think that also speaks to its, its caliber. And a lot of the music is, about the music like a lot of what he writes about is about the music itself too yeah so like, so, the music. yeah so i feel like a lot of the time it's like explanatory almost yeah to, to use it you know like it, it's, it's explaining that's or it's it's part of the music because that's the music that he's describing in the music like it's very self-referential all the way down historically yeah. you know yeah, yeah. no like uh we do the ska he he talked about writing that song when he was he was with uh, hanging out with with Greg Lee, helping him write some songs. And, and you, you take a listen to that song, and he said that yeah, he was helping uh, Hepcat write "I Can't Wait." And you put those songs back to back, and you can tell that they they may have started as a from a similar kind of place because they have not the same chord progression, but the same kind of feel, same energy. Yeah, so definitely. yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting listening to "I Can't Wait" by Hepcat. And then listen to We Do the Ska by Chris Murray. And even though they are instrumentation wise, very different, you know, because Hepcat has got the, the full band and they're just just screaming the crop and they're, they're, they're wailing on it, um, creating an awesome ska song that, that Chris is able to record a single guitar and him singing to a Walkman and still capture the essence of ska music. And I think that puts the point on the exclamation part, point on the exclamation mark for Chris, that that's what he's capable of and what these three records had, had demonstrated. And uh, we don't have time, I guess, on this episode to talk about the stuff he does next, like the Chris Murray combo or the slackness with the slackers. He's done a few other records. Maybe we'll visit those later. But I, I think the core of his uh, 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 when we're thinking about a history podcast, uh, the King Apparatus days, super important to the evolution of ska music in Canada this trilogy of records he did to sort of uh, kickstart the evolution of more traditional ska in the U S after Scott kind of kicked the curb uh, in the late nineties. 
Um, I, th- I think it's worth visiting his discography and understanding how important he is to the evolution of the genre. And uh, so this is uh, this has been awesome. Uh, I'm going to throw it over to you, Prize Fighters. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's over to you to plug. What do you got to plug? Well, um, we just put out a, a brand new record, um, Punch Up on Jump Up Records. Um, so that's uh, that's out there on on vinyl and on CD. Um, so you can you can find that on uh, any of our social media, Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. But uh, PrizeFighters.net, or sorry, ThePrizeFighters.net. You can also get it on JumpUpRecords.com. Uh, amazing. Uh, I'm going to say Company Time, probably my favorite song on the record. Uh, I loved it. That's like four for four podcasts that we've been on where the host of. <laughs> told us that company time is their their favorite song that, that was going to be our fourth single that we were going to release um so we'll we'll have to do something special for that one but uh it's it's good to know that people have a a favorite from the record oh yeah big fan joey what about you uh probably think and pray oh yeah, yeah. i love that song yeah it's a good one but well, it's thank you a, a fantastic record in general actually I, I jumped into your uh back catalog as well and your live album is pretty kick-ass too. I, I when you were saying that you uh, like to record things with as many people kind of playing at the same time as possible and whatnot, it's very you, you can tell on the live record because it sounds very very good, very tight. Oh, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, it was awesome. I I very much enjoyed it. We both said thank you at the same time. We're just we're just being very polite and nice to one another. <laughs> oh yeah, that's what we got in common—the Canada Minnesota connection, yeah. right there. Canadians and Midwest, everyone's <laughs> thanking everybody all the time at the oh, same yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Checkered Pass. Hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok at Checkered Pass Pod, or send us an email at CheckeredPassPod at gmail Support the pod and get bonus content, including a full length and unedited audio of this episode sign up for our checkered head patreon at patreon.com slash checkered past we also have merch available at checkeredpast.ca checkered past is edited by arianne and engineered by joey that's me and so until next time i'm rob and i'm joey in the mortal words of chris murray we do the ska and ska is all we need oh, hey.